difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with... Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias. We've retrieved Genevieve from her watery grave in the grotto, but she seems to have lost her voice, so she can't join us for this episode. We're sure she'll be fine, and we'll know when she's back when she breaks out in song. Or terrible fish puns. Mm. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Jack Arnold's 1954 black and white horror classic, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, the last bastion of the classic Universal movie monster series, at least until Universal awkwardly tried to revive the franchise in 2017 with the Tom Cruise version of The Mummy. In this episode, we'll look at a more successful revival of the Black Lagoon mythos in Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, which he designed to play out his childhood fantasies of a version of the Black Lagoon story where the creature and the girl wind up together. Here's a quote from a piece about the film in The Hollywood Reporter, where del Toro talked about his influences. The creature was the most beautiful design I'd ever seen, he recalls. And I saw him swimming under actress Julie Adams, and I loved that the creature was in love with her, and I felt an almost existential desire for them to end up together. Of course, it didn't happen, unquote. So young del Toro made it happen, sketching the fishman and his love interest over and over again. Quote, I had them eating ice cream on a double bicycle, having dinner, he says. Okay, so never mind the old jokes about how little a fish needs a bicycle. This is a fascinating image, the idea of a young del Toro drawing Julie Adams and the Gill Man out getting ice cream together. It speaks to his lifelong love of monsters, which comes up in virtually every film he's ever done, from his early Mexican film Kronos up through the Hellboy pictures and on to the recent Crimson Peak. People in his movie are often fighting against monsters, but his movies tend to fetishize the grotesque and bizarre as well, and he loves monsters as symbols for every dark emotion in the human pantheon. So with Creature from the Black Lagoon, del Toro gets to play out his childhood fantasies by turning the Gill Man into a victim who can only be rescued by a woman who loves him. Captured and abused in captivity by all-American government agent Richard Strickland, played by Michael Shannon, the fish creature is loved and protected by mute janitor Elisa Esposito, played by Sally Hawkins. She gets a little help from her friends. Black janitor Zelda, played by Octavia Spencer, gay neighbor Giles, played by Richard Jenkins, and Russian agent Dr. Robert Hofstetler, played by Michael Stuhlbarg. It's no coincidence that this group of minority and outsider figures are up against a xenophobic, narrow-minded man who purports to represent American power and the American dream. There's a lot going on here in terms of del Toro's favorite symbols, his causes, and his obsessions. We'll unpack it in the second half of our pairing of Creature from the Black Lagoon and The Shape of Water. She deaf? Mute, sir. She can hear you. Clean that lab, you get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human, stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. looks at me he doesn't know how i am incomplete he sees me as i am the natives in the amazon worship this like a god get him out what are you talking about no you need to take it apart learn how it works i don't want an intricate beautiful thing destroyed we can do nothing. I'm sorry. Don't do this, Eliza. What is she saying? Don't do this. Oh, God, it's not even human. If I told you about her, what would I say? I wonder. Okay, so I'm given to understand that we all like Shape of Water, but that none of us... Love Shape of Water. I think I'm closest to loving it. I like this film an awful lot. I watched it again leading up to this. And it's just, you know, everything's so beautiful. Everything's wonderfully shot. It almost feels, I think I think Scott uses the term snow globe movie, 
yeah. where it feels a little <laughs> too self-contained, a little yeah, too airless. Yeah. And I get all that, but no, I, I find it really moving. It's almost overwrought in the sense that, that it all, you know, matches up so neatly as, as a metaphor for the era, for outsiderdom, for the Cold War and everything. But I don't know, it still works for me. I, I like it a lot. And I love the idea of it being a realization of sort of the subtext of or, or one person's interpretation of the subtext of Creature from the Black Lagoon. It, it works really quite well for me. Scott? Uh, well, I saw it at Toronto and was let, let down by it. That's where I came up with the phrase Snow Globe movie, which you remembered in terms of describing uh, what it felt like, um, this beautiful thing that was being preserved in amber rather than a vital, exciting, emotion-filled piece of work that I think you know, Del Toro intended. Uh, then I saw a Creature from the Black Lagoon and then watched Shape of Water again this morning, and I, I liked it less <laughs> the mm. second time than I, you know, because... Creature from Black Lagoon sort of held it in sharp relief in a way because we were talking in that first episode about how Creature from the Black Lagoon has real heat to it. It has verdant emotion and eroticism and tension and excitement. And I just, I felt like none of that was there in Shape of Water. It just felt the whole thing is just so fussed over. I just, I didn't feel the emotion of it at all. It was just all very worked out in a way that left me totally cold both times I saw it. I'm not disagreeing with you about it being worked out, but it, it works for me. It worked for me both times. I mean, I can't resist that performance from Hawkins. I can't resist that music. I can't resist the location of the sort of like these slightly run down apartment above a, of a movie house in which I think is just beautifully realized. Uh, it works for me. Everything is maybe overly considered, but uh, to me, all the parts still keep the machine twirling. I, I don't tend to have a problem with overly considered movies. I mean, I think that Phantom Thread is an overly considered movie where everything has a purpose and a place and it just it feels like it's all been intellectualized to death. And I can love a movie like that because of the feeling of care that goes into it to some degree more than like I love Terry Gilliam, but his films always just have a sort of anarchic, like thrown together, not thought mm-hmm. through feeling that always frustrates me because I want them to be a little more thought through. So I don't think my my turn off here is the thought throughness of it. I am always baffled at the the way I don't love Guillermo del Toro's films. Like I like them, I appreciate the aesthetics of them, and I appreciate his fandom. Like he is such an appealing character, talking about his movies, just talking about the things that he loves. I want to sit in a room with him and listen to him geek out over all the things he I, adores. I want to go to his house. I want to go to Bleak House. I want to see. <laughs> you know about this, right? You, you know about. He has a whole second house for all his memorabilia. He has a library that has like full size figures of. Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft like they were just hanging out there with him. It does um, not surprise yeah, me anyway. at all. <laughs> it, it does not surprise me in the slightest that Guillermo del Toro would need a second house to contain his fandom because mm-hmm. his fandom is large. <laughs> it's a large fandom. And he loves like so many things that I love. He loves fables and he loves monsters and he loves like dark, bleak fantasy and he, he loves stories that go to extreme ends and he loves strong women characters and he loves the symbols of you know all of these outsiders fighting back against an oppressive force that pretends that it's patriotic and is just inherently selfish. There's so much going on in this film that are all of these things I should love, and I just I feel a little cold about it, and I'm I have a really hard time putting my finger on why. One small part of it I know is just the fact that he finds things like the way he eroticizes the fishman in this thing. I just can't get into I, I find things like the chunky blue water like literally stomach turning mm. just like viscerally grotesque to a point where i have a hard time connecting to the film but there's also just a degree to which i feel very outside of it and maybe snow globe movie is the description for that i i feel like it's a little hermetic world that's mm-hmm. created that i don't get to be in yeah but it kind of presents itself though as 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 a fairy tale and there's always you know once upon a time is always a little bit distancing i think i I think i love fairy tales sure but i I don't think you're ever you know this is sort of an unreal world you're not really supposed to enter into i think kind of creates an excuse for that i don't but if if you're if that's getting in the way of you enjoying the film i'm not sure what to say but there's also just the the degree to which uh, you know giles character loves old movies and there are the old musicals that are playing in the background that are sort of setting the swoony romantic tone for this film, the fantasy segment where Sally Hawkins sings, like all of that is it's like he made a list of things I love. 
Yeah, it's just so maudlin, all that stuff to me. I can't. It's mm. all. It's so. It's just too much. But I wanted to. I wanted. Oh, that, that, no, no. I mean, I want to. I want to say that, like, that is some of the things in the film I think I connected okay. to most, mostly because I can appreciate Giles' love of the past, his love of nostalgia, and his desire. Like, he's in a world that has literally passed him by. Mm-hmm. That has has basically said everything you spent your life building toward is no longer needed. We are discarding you. So of course he wants to disappear in the past. That's something I can sort of viscerally feel in a way I cannot viscerally feel fishman romance. Yeah, I guess I wanted though to go way back to push against this point you made about Phantom Thread, which of course is my favorite film of the year. I'd like to make clear that I don't mine and in fact quite appreciate meticulousness on the part of of a filmmaker and a story that is thought through and shots that are thought through but i think there's an audacity and a danger and an unpredictability in in life to phantom thread that isn't present for me in a film like shape of water which feels again too worked over and and uh precious i guess would be another word i'd use for it Mm. it reminded me the more i think about it the films of del toro's that i like the most are kind of the more unruly ones are, are the are the blade twos and hellboy twos and crimson peaks rather than the pan's labyrinths and uh devil's backbones and shapes of water type movies uh so i think there's a type of del toro film i like and a type that i don't respond crimson well to. peak is really underrated and i think that's the most hot-blooded of his films yeah. as well yeah um and i i will say i probably like it i probably like it better than this movie but i yeah, and there's that sort of he, they put out that box set of his films with Kronos and Devil's Backbone and, and Pan's Labyrinth, but this feels more like an extension of those than Kronos. Kronos is a, kind of the odd film out there, I think. I think this is is a similarly like fable like story, mm-hmm. and I think they all kind of had that sort of that arm's length distance. But I, I think the emotions in them are still strong enough. Like I'm thinking of you know Pan's Labyrinth, but I think I find the end of that movie deeply moving and I, I find elements of this movie uh, moving as, as well I, I guess I can kind of project inside inside the snow globe a little bit better to me the places that del Toro is connected to me most have been when he does one pure thing and usually for me what he does best when he's doing one pure thing is dread the dread that suffuses devil's backbone mm-hmm. I think is tremendously effective the dread that comes from the the pale man in pan's labyrinth is spectacular and there's just there's moments when he gives way to, to pure horror and it doesn't feel calculated it doesn't feel like he's doing eight things at once maybe that's my problem with shape of water is this feeling that he's layering fear and eroticism and nostalgia and that sort of fairy tale distance and and fable artificiality all over each other. And I don't feel like the film ever goes deeply enough into any of those one elements to make me feel it entirely. I mean, you mentioned this in the intro about these characters all being outsiders in their different ways. And I just, I felt, again, that was, it it all felt very programmatic to me that he's going to deal with race and he's going to deal with homophobia and he's going to, you know, deal with other forms of bigotry, you know, that was happening in this period. And that is kind of like this weird little agenda that the film has to impose on us on top of every other thing that it's doing. It's so busy, this movie. It is very busy. Um, But it also has, it has something that I do appreciate about the film. I'm making it sound like I really dislike the film and I have much more of a mixed feeling uh, about it, maybe leaning negative at this point, but... Um, by the end of the podcast, you're just going to hate it. I am going to hate <laughs> it, but, I, but I, I do... I mean, you can't deny the, the level of craft here, which is very high, and I do appreciate that nuanced take on the period where the film is not completely awash in nostalgia as it could have been. We uh, should say that and, this movie and, takes place in 1962. It's, yeah. The plot is heavily influenced by the threat of of communism, of the Russians, of the Russians specifically going into space, like the continuation of the space race and, and Michael Shannon representing this government agent who's afraid that America might be falling behind, that we might be losing the American way of life. So when you talk about the period, like that's specifically what you're talking about. Yeah. And I th- there's a thing to remind me a little bit of Stephen King when he gets in periods like this, like in the 11, 2263 or Christine or something. He's so much in love with describing the things that he 
fetishizes about that era, that he misses some of the darkness of it. And that's not something you could say of Del Toro. I mean, uh, I think the film has a nice balance of what was seductive and what was insidious about the period. So in that, I do respect it for that. And my God, he's just a, he basically just took every big character actor off the table for this for a <laughs> while, for this shoot, right? I mean, it's got... Richard Jenkins, Michael Stuhlbarg, Michael Shannon. I mean, that's like... Octavia Spencer. It's like character actor bingo, this movie. It is character actor bingo. And I want to talk a little about them because to me, these these actors and kind of the characters they play are the saving grace of the film. I mean, I think Sally Hawkins is so strong in this film. When I talk about the film doing too many things at once, I can kind of like focus in on her because she's doing like one specific thing. And that's a woman who... Who is a fish out of water? Who is not comic or ha ha ha? <laughs> kind of literally, she's not comic. She's not slapsticky. Like she is, she has literally been removed from a background that we don't understand. Oh my God, she is a fish out of water. She is, and it's tragic and it's melancholy. And she just projects this sense of having come from a long period of tragedy in her life and having come back from it with like an innate angry strength that she puts into whatever she does. Everything she does in this film, she does out of a sense of, of quiet, self-righteous defiance. And it's very pure and I love it very much. But my favorite character in the film is Michael Stuhlbarg's character. The sympathy and the care that he puts into like this man who is outside of his country and outside of his element and perpetually under threat and then he still like finds his humanity in it. Like I, I love that portrayal. I love the way that character is written. I love the way he's performed. It's weird to think about his loyalties too. I mean, at what point did he really stop becoming a Russian agent? <laughs> I mean, almost before the film began, right? I mean, where, where's where's his loyalty to country when we even meet him? I think he's immediately alarmed by the way Fishman is treated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, that, and that's not necessarily what he's there to be. He's not there to be alarmed. He's there to get information. It feels like mission drift is set in for, for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a person before he's an agent. And I think that that's a very deliberate contrast with Michael Shannon, who at least believes that he's an agent before he's a person. But uh, like the symbolism of his rotting fingers is just so garish and obvious. <laughs> I actually find it kind of annoying because he's such a great symbol in and of himself. You know, the, the man that thinks he's doing everything for country, but he sits at home like with his wife and his 2.5 kids in front of the TV playing the lives of Dovey Gillis. And he grits his teeth and says, this is America. He's just yeah. like, this, this is my belief system. This is what I'm protecting. I do it by torturing things for fun. Yeah. And and having, of course, like the most missionary sex possible. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's all right. We got, we got it, Del Toro. Please. Yeah, this is not a subtle movie. No, but he's, I mean, he's, he's scary. Like, I love Michael Shannon. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, he's well cast. Uh, it's well cast all the way through. These are good, these are good, good characters. And I, I appreciate your comment on Hawkins performance i you know and i wonder like though when the film begins i don't i th- think she i'm not going to say finds her voice because she's she's mute and that's the most cliched thing in the world but i think she does start the film pretty beaten down and is inspired to to find her strength i guess and to be able to stand up for what she wants uh, and which which is very strange a very strange compulsion and uh, that would be shared by no one else but that she takes great risks to do it i mean she uh in sign language and tells off uh, Michael Shannon's character to his face uh, when she's confronted by him. So it's a, it's a strong character. It's a character. I don't think she is beaten down though. Like we were introduced to her. Yeah. We're introduced to her via this like Amelie style montage of her masturbating, which I, when I first saw that in the film, I was like, what are we doing here? And I was like, Oh, we're establishing her as a sexual being. She is not like brought out of her sexual shell by the fish man. She she's is lonely. Though. I mean, I, th- I always thought that more, more an expression of loneliness. She's lonely, but she carries with a certain herself with a certain amount of dignity uh, as well. And mm-hmm. I, I think I think part of that is kind of has sunk into this routine. I mean, looking for order in a life that has not been orderly. And you know, yeah. she sets the timer before she masturbates, and she has her sandwich ready. She takes it over to to her pal, and then she catches the bus on time, and she's off. And it may be a very mechanical routine, but it's also a comforting routine that she's mm-hmm. developed. Like she lives an orderly life, and maybe she needs some del Toro chaos to come into it to fully be herself 
but I don't, I, I sense a loneliness in her, but not like a beaten downness. Like she, to me, has taken forceful control of her life. And it just, it turns out that there can be something more to it than what she's made of it. Yeah. I think about the performance. I think about those shots of her on the bus. They're also lovely. And the, and the score is great. And, and we haven't even touched on Doug Jones as, as the fish man, but you know, he does great creature performances and that's a, an amazing costume. And, and there's, there's so much in this movie. I understand it, that it may be a little overstuffed, but you know, I think to turn your back on it is to turn your back on a, on a film filled with pleasures. Yeah. I mean, Doug Jones is kind of a remarkable performer and a remarkable he brings a remarkable humanity to the monsters he plays and that's a good place to get into connections because i i don't think we would be where we are with creature from the black lagoon if the creature itself wasn't played with such a compelling weird humanity so uh why don't we take a break and then we'll be right back to talk about the connections between creature from the black lagoon and the shape of water out what are you talking about no absolutely not because it's breaking the law that's why probably breaking the law just talking about it oh he's alone oh now does this mean that whenever we go to a chinese restaurant you want to save every fish in the tank so what if he's alone we're all alone the loneliest thing you've ever seen. Well, you just said it, right? You just said it. You called it a thing. It's a thing. It's a freak. I can understand you. Calm down. God, calm down. All right, I, w- I will repeat it to you. What am I? I move my mouth like him I make no sound like him what does that make me all that I am all that I've ever been brought me here to him see you're saying him it's a him now it's a just hit me. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I wanted to start off with the specific character parallels. I feel like Mark from Creature from the Black Lagoon, the, the Richard Denning character who's the vaguely Nazi-ish fame seeker who kind of pretends he's in it for the uh, to be a little twister about it. He's in it. He's not in it for the science. He's in it for the fame. Uh, feels like a pretty strong parallel to Michael Shannon's character who claims it's about patriotism, but it's it's really just kind of about sadism and his desire to impress. He he also believes that there's chaos in the world and that life will be better when all of it is gotten rid of. And the two of them both kind of play out as these like sadistic murder happy characters that everybody else is trying to rein in. They play very differently, but they've both kind of got the same motives underneath, it feels like. I think that's true. I think also there's a, there's a good one-to-one comparison between the, the fish man and the and gill man. <laughs> oh, whoa. Oh, you see a similarity there? Yeah. And, and Kay, possibly Kay and Eliza here. Hear me out on this. I'm not um, seeing it. Again, because I was talking earlier about seeing Creature from the Black Lagoon and then feeling less kind toward the shape of water. To see these characters develop more doesn't necessarily make that dynamic work. You know, it's more intriguing to me, for example, to have the relationship between Kay and Gilman and Creature from the Black Lagoon have this unresolved eroticism than it is to to have it realized as explicitly as it is in this film. I feel like it's destroying the mystery in a way. Here's a criticism I've seen floating around, and it's one that stuck with my wife and kind of soured her a little bit on The Shape of Water, is this, like... Part of the shape of water is about erasing the differences between yourself and the other, you know, humanity and the rest of the world and and so on and so forth. But when you take the sexual element that far, it raises the question of can the fish man consent? I mean, is this a relationship between 
to people who are on the same ground in terms of like intelligence and you know free will and, and all that and that, that's a tough question to, to get around like it maybe maybe it does work better as subtext than as text I have to agree with you I mean that was one thing that kind of I guess I haven't really read people writing about consent uh, regarding this movie but I can feel it because there's the exact same question that I had with the first one is nobody's really questioning how intelligent this thing is or how human this thing is, how much it understands. And when she has sex with it, there is a sort of feeling of it as an object. Like we really don't get a sense of what this act, we know what it means to her. We don't have any idea what it means to, to the creature itself. I don't know. I think this relationship, though, is carefully established, though, because they have the whole thing with the eggs and she's visiting him all the time. And there's a lot of time that they do spend together to build a, build a certain amount of intimacy. And this understanding of him as a potential sexual partner comes almost by accident, right? By her touching him on the shoulder, I believe, and in, in, in him having this kind of reaction, right? Uh, I think the underlying question is, say you are strongly attracted to the equivalent creature in your life and that creature ate your cat a few hours earlier <laughs> would you feel comfortable having sex with this creature well, it wasn't my cat remember it's, it's, <laughs> well nonetheless it's, 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 uh... a cat any cat what, what really? if it what if it ate iris what if it ate your beloved pug well, i don't know anything to do with anything that ate iris <laughs> well there you go no but i mean i think just sort of the the it was out of control. Was it, was it in this creature's nature to eat iris? Well, it was, it was out of control. It was acting on its nature. It ate a cat. Then viewing it as an erotic object. I mean, I get it. I get what this movie mm-hmm. is doing. And again, I, you know, it's a movie I like. But the idea is that, you know, what ultimately, whatever he is, she is too and always has been. She's got the gills in her neck. They are re- related. And, and it's about finding that connection. But, but it, is, it is a sticky thing to get over. And I mean, like, I think the less explained about it, this would not be a movie necessarily improved by going through and answering these questions. But I think it is a movie that is it's worth asking these questions, because I really don't know what del Toro's intent is here. And if the intent is to play out this fantasy he had as a little kid of this woman and her fish riding a bicycle together, like it may not be thought through more than that the thing you mentioned about the interview i see that so clearly in that scene where there's eating dinner together you know <laughs> which is actually leads into that that lovely uh musical sequence but uh but it is like sort of this weird scene of domestic not bliss but but comfort of the two of them at the table together and it's one of the images that sticks with me from this movie there's also for me it's just it's a little hard to get over doug jones as abe sapien in the hellboy movies mm-hmm. you know playing a very visually similar fishman character also in a del toro movie and abe sapien is is very intellectual and he's very He's emotionally attractive. You know, he's a he's a sensitive, thoughtful, well-educated guy that pays attention to other people's feelings. And it's really weird seeing him here as this kind of like butch, mute, older brother that's just sort of like all brawn and apparently fishcock. He, <laughs> there's a very I, I, evocative. I was going to add something, but there's I, a no, very I, evocative I, fishcock yeah. gesture in there. I just there think is. you got to admit it. No. It, Tasha's not being being crude here. This is yeah, she's, oh, I am she's being, crude. Crude. being crude. Uh, <laughs> God, I was just gonna say he's sort of a bad boy type, <laughs> but you go ahead with your fishcock. <laughs> I I had no further thoughts on fishcock. No, no, carry on, Scott. Is that an E? I don't even know if that's an E. Is that or like an explicit rating? I thought we had given up on. Uh, I don't know. I mean, this is we've been uh, talking about eroticism this entire time. What, does the is there some algorithm that catches up terms like fishcock? I am pretty sure that the algorithm does not include fishcock. If we're if we're going to back away a little bit from from that level of crudity, I would like to talk a bit about the both films, like the way that they intersect with nostalgia, because Del Toro. I read this huge essay for io9 like five minutes before they stopped taking uh, freelance pieces about how all of del toro's films are tied together by an obsession with the past like he is he's obsessed with ghosts and ghosts always represent the past and how you have to get over the past in order to move into the future like every single one of his films like clockwork <laughs> but he never he never gets over whatever it is no moves forward at no all. no sometimes the characters do often they don't and it's their doom <laughs> i mean in in crimson peak it's all about 
these are the literal ghosts of your sins living with you. And if you can't find a way to live with them, they will destroy you. And here, nostalgia is used in this just kind of like soft focused way as some place to retreat into. What interests me about Creature is the way it touches on the nostalgia of going back to these old 20s and 30s films. And I kind of wonder if its obsession with past monster movies, past universal monster movies, is in part what drove del Toro to put in this obsession with old black and white cinema, old black and white musicals, old MGM musicals in his movie. Yeah, and they'd be rough. The musicals that Chicken's character is watching would be roughly contemporary with the original monster films as well. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, I, I hadn't considered that. I mean, it was a step back to what, what had worked before with the monster films to make it in the first place. But would you really call, I never really thought about the um, evocation of the universal horror tradition as being particularly nostalgic. That wouldn't be a word I would use to describe Creature from the Black Lagoon in the same way I would definitely use it to describe The Shape of Water. Oh, it's extra textual, Scott. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, no, I'm, I'm, I mean, I am serious. I'm, I'm teasing you. I'm baiting you. But I'm also serious. I think it's more a nostalgia in the filmmakers. I think that Del Toro just puts it very literally. He puts his nostalgia that informed the film into his characters and puts it on the screen in a way that the people behind Creature didn't necessarily. It's a matter, I guess the difference is kind of a feeling because you can, if you're Jack Arnold, you can say there's a roadmap for doing this type of movie and that roadmap are, are these universal horror films that were made 20 years ago. That's a d- much different feeling than what Del Toro does, which is to look back on this period with tremendous evident fondness in the actual text of the film. To me, the nostalgic quality is present in one and not present in the other. I I agree with you. I mean, I think it's on screen in one case and not on screen in the other. I just think that in both cases, it's part of the environment that created the film in the first place. Well, we kind of talked about how both of these films delve into that humanity is the real monster theme. Do you feel like Shannon's character, Shannon's character is a just a naked, obvious villain? Like, yeah. how do you feel that he compares with kind of our naked, obvious villain in the first film? I mean, I think he's more villainous <laughs> and, less, and less human. It's to a surprising degree, Del Toro doesn't care that much to soften the edges at all on that character or to make us understand him very well as anything other than a thug that I may I guess maybe is trying to to do his duty as a decent man as he as he puts it as a military man but is clearly a, a, a sadist and a very disturbed human being who really wants to harm this creature for nefarious reasons but I mean I don't think we sympathize any more than that with Mark and creature from the Black Lagoon he he wants to kill this thing that he's just encountered for pretty specious reasons he wants Kay in just a pretty like nakedly animalistic way he's just he's very I see that I want that he resorts to violence late in the film when he doesn't get what he wants well I would I would respond to that in two ways one is I think he's he's more vain than sadistic and two the creature and creature of the Black Lagoon is a legitimate threat in which in which violence is a reasonable option for dealing with the creature it's a you know the creature in the shape of water is docile we don't really understand uh, I mean he he has to defend himself I guess and and so and so I'm sure they had a rough trip back as he describes it to the lab but but I think you can look at the cre- creature and creature from the Black Lagoon as a, a a true threat and the question over whether to deal with that threat through violence is a legitimate question like his side of the debate is legitimate I don't think you could ever see Michael Shannon's actions as reasonable in The Shape of Water yeah I think it helps to have Michael Shannon as that character though because there are little bits of not vulnerability but you know little bits of insecurity that he brings to it just by his sheer Michael Shannon-ness of it that gives it a little more dimension than, than he would have otherwise but yeah it is it is a little bit of a stand-in for a, a political undercurrent of the era as much as a character in, in many ways yeah I think there's a degree to which and Del Toro often is very open about talking about his symbolism in the same way he's very naked about putting it on the screen I think there's a degree to which everything about that character is motivated by fear fear of the other, fear of the other country, fear of these creatures that he can't control. Fear of not doing his job well and getting demoted or whatever. Fear of his own body falling apart, which it's doing. Mm. It's just step after step after step. He's afraid of everything. And Del Toro is 
very openly evoking kind of the current American government and the current American xenophobic mindset, putting it all into this character. He's been very open about that as well. I need more time. Don't let the fact that you feel like a loser now, that you let your competitive tendencies... I'm not competitive. I don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. This thing dies. You learn, I leave. Out of here. I settle down. My family settles down. Somewhere nice. A real city. This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. So are the Soviets, the gooks, and we still kill them, don't we? The bottom line is, this isn't a petting zoo, and I don't want to be in this shithole any longer than need be. Do you? Finally, I just I wanted to talk a little about how both of these films kind of use uh, like their underwater cinematography as like a romantic image. I, I think that both of these films heavily romanticize the idea of swimming as just this. I, I guess on some level, it's all a, like a back to the womb metaphor. But I, like both of them are kind of obsessed with just the beauty of people moving underwater. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always been an erotic quality to water and the way, way people look and move and through water. I mean, I think the of shape a, of it, even the shape <laughs> of it. But I think of a film like uh, La Talente by Jean Vigo, which has a really famous sequence underwater involving uh, newlyweds, and it just it does have a certain quality. I mean, um, you know, plus people tend to wear less clothes when they're in, in the water. You know, it's it's or no clothes if you want to get like super basic about it. So it's that works, and there's just a grace that can happen. And, and uh, a beauty and a slowness and uh, that both films exploit to incredible effect. Well, one thing I like about, about Creature from the Black Lagoon is how graceful, given there's a guy in a suit, it's an incredibly graceful movement through water. And yet it mm-hmm. also, it does feel like kind of what you mentioned before, less choreographed. It feels like you're kind of watching something in its natural environment in a way. It's almost like nature footage, whereas Shape of Water, the water sequences are, are, are some of the most choreographed parts in a very choreographed film, but um, uh, they're, they're lovely. So that's some really amazing imagery. Yeah, that I mean, the actual opening sequence, just of her sleeping underwater in a kind of a floating world. Like if you want to talk snow bubble imagery, I know that's that's it doesn't get more specific than that. And I'm not sure how or whether that image fits into the film at all, except possibly just sort of as a dream image. But it definitely gives you that fairy tale sensation to start with. Keith, you said it had a JFK thing happening for it, the narration at the beginning. Yeah, it refers to it like as being in the last days of a rule of a prince, and that's a JFK reference. Just like, he said that, and I just my eyes could not have rolled further back in my head. It's just, right. I know, it's right. It's right. the symbol. You know, it's like a thing where is the symbolism is either going to connect with the area you just think it's too much right. um, but I, but I was I was I think I was happier with the narration before realizing that it was all connected to some uh, real world political uh, atmosphere and then, uh, then I liked it less all right Scott sorry yeah, I told Keith. you we told you we'd get you to not like actively not liking it through <laughs> at the end of the podcast general buzzkill um, we so. all salute <laughs> Well, I don't mean to leave everybody with their buzzes totally killed. Maybe we could uh, we could end on a slightly happier note than that. I think the slightly happier note is that this is a re- it's caught on with audiences, as you said, and it's certainly been caught on with the awards. And it's let's just step back a minute. It's a really weird movie to get that kind of embrace that kind of way. It's it's a you know a monster movie with sort of interspecies sex. What a, what an odd movie to break through. I'm I'm really happy about that. Yeah, See, Buzzkill negated. <laughs> Scott, yeah, he, I mean, he makes a lot of a lot of seemingly. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm talking now. <laughs> no more you're, killing the you're, buzz. You're, you're I'm not, not kill permitted it. to I, bring it down. All I'm saying is he ma- he makes a lot of seemingly unpalatable things palatable. That's all I'm saying through through the art of cinema. <laughs> and he also keeps some really unpalatable things as unpalatable, like that chunky green water. I mean, he's just, he's really into... You don't like algae, do you? Oh, I don't like people breathing algae. It, like, I wanted to just cough through that entire movie thinking about it, that fish man breathing that stuff. Hopefully gills can filter out moss. But no, you're right. I I kind of love him just for continuing to make 
weird movies that aren't really like anybody else's. He produces so many movies from young up-and-coming filmmakers that he wants to help break out. And many of those movies have been idiosyncratic in very different ways from each other. And many of them have been really great. But none of them are like his movies. He's just he's a very singular filmmaker. That's true. Much like Creature from the Black Lagoon is a pretty singular film. Well, Creature from the Black Lagoon is available all over the place in a variety of Blu-ray and DVD compilations, and it's on various streaming services for rental. Uh, it's also on Stars. The Shape of Water is still in theaters, and it probably won't be there forever, but at this point, we have no proof that that's true. It's possible it will just keep screening until it turns up into a shriveled up fossil of film, and a terrible archaeologist will come rip it right off the screen and start the cycle anew. We'll be right back with your next picture show. It's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world has been good for you lately? I, I've got a, a, a something that would be another great uh, pairing with either of these films. It, it just came out on Blu-ray, available on all the streaming services, the usual services. But it's a 1993 film called Matinee, uh, directed <laughs> by Joe Dante. Oh, wow, um, yeah. Yeah, and it, I think it's kind of... Kind of got overlooked at the time, but it's kind of emerged as pretty clearly one of Dante's best films. I mean, it is um, about a kid growing up, um, a monster movie fan, growing up with all the sort of monster culture stuff floating around his head in Key West against the background of the, as the film plays out, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where his dad is uh, serving on a boat. And as the world teeters closer to a nuclear disaster, his main distraction is is that the uh, producer Lawrence Wolsey, based on William Castle and played by John Goodman, is bringing his latest film to town, a film called Mant, with the tagline, Half Man, Half Ant, presented in Vision and Rumble-Rama. So Castle, <laughs> if, if you don't know, was a uh, B-movie producer who was, who was famed for his gimmicks. He had one film in which the, the audience had to vote on the outcome of a character. He floated ghosts over over the audience he always had always had a gimmick and goodman plays him delightfully as a sort of a part artist part con man but also you know a character with with some heart the period is evoked uh, richly you know it's very much the world that joe dante grew up in you can kind of feel that nostalgia for it but also it's it's a film that is uh, not blind to its uh, your shortcomings and the and mant itself, which you see much of over the course of the film. And the Blu-ray includes the entirety of the film, which which Dante filmed. Uh, Wait, is, how it, long is it? Not that long, but <laughs> but you know, you know, the, you, you get a whole story in there. It is um, you know, it's, it sort of perfectly evokes the films of the time. As does does a a, a brief parody of Disney family films called the uh, Shook Up Shopping Cart about a, a uh, shopping cart uh, that is possessed by the spirit of uh, somebody or other, I forget who, but it features a very young and then unknown uh, Naomi Watts as the, as the, uh, the star of, of that film. So it's a, it's a delight and it's also, it's got stuff on its mind and it's uh, full of uh, wonderful performances from from what was Dante's uh, you know repertory company, which included uh, Robert Picardo and Dick Miller and in, in a fairly major role, John Sayles uh, with whom he, uh, they worked together for Roger Corman back uh, in the 70s. So, no, it's a delightful film and, and uh, the Blu-ray edition has lots of fun stuff on it and, and if, if you're just streaming it somewhere, you will you'll also just enjoy watching the film itself. Um, I, it's been 15 years, but I, I mean, I remember seeing that in theaters and thinking it was really fun and it kind of sounds like something that really needs to be revisited just because I would know so many more of those people these days and so much more about William Castle and the period it's evoking. I, I think I would probably enjoy it a lot more. I'm going to make you feel nostalgic it's been 25 years um <laughs> I, i'm sure that the 90s theater. weren't that long ago uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not yeah, that old pretty pretty sure they were i, I also i think back in the 90s i could still math but apparently <laughs> I'm, I'm way too old to math now yeah would have been what? a good pairing with uh the shape of water yeah would have been would have been a great yeah. pairing as would of et we never talked about the et connection no so we did they're pretty prominent i think uh you know, given the healing powers that this uh, fish man has, right? And, and Tasha and I were talking you know, a little bit off mic about how it, it's directly related to the H.P. Lovecraft story, The Shadow Over In's Mouth, kind of the mirror image uh, of that story in, in some ways. Yeah, that, that cracked me up. As soon as you made that connection, just the idea of, hey, we're all fish and it's great. <laughs> and there is no existential dread. We we all feel very uplifted by that fact. That's, and it, it also kind of turns terrific. on, you know, the, the themes of, of tolerance in this film kind of turn the themes of, of the underlying racism 
cynicism of that story in particular uh, on its head. But anyway, that's it's, it's making Lovecraft better. We are digressing down a, a Lovecraft pit here. So, so Scott, what how, how about you? Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, in my capacity as a freelance writer, I occasionally do some work for watching, for, uh, or actually often do work for watching with the New York Times site. One of the features they've been running is six films to watch if you loved X film, the X film being like what a Best Picture nominee. And I, and I got stuck with the most beloved Best Picture nominee, Darkest Hour, <laughs> the ninth film nominated for Best Picture, probably. But there are some films connected to it that I found and liked. And one I wanted to point out in particular is, is the film Mrs. Miniver. Have any of you seen Mrs. Miniver, the uh, William Wyler film? 1942. Uh, William Wyler, of course, did the definitive coming home film about World War II, The Best Years of Our Lives. Uh, that was 1946. But first he did an, uh, Mrs. Miniver. It's a film about uh, well-to-do British folks who live outside of London in, a, in this village that you'd think was untouched by anything, any harm, but in, in fact is right about it to get touched by war. And it's just a, it's a really remarkable, richly layered drama about a decent, loving family who show courage and resilience when duty calls. And, and uh, it reminded me a lot of the big scene in uh, Darkest Hour, the made-up scene where Churchill rides the tube and uh, everybody on there is is ready to dig in for the fight. And you get that sense of that spirit it carries through Mrs. Miniver in which all these or, you know ordinary people who have never had to face this kind of adversity, they do it and they do it with a, a great deal of dignity and heart. And um, I find it very rousing. And it also has a, has a Dunkirk connection because the uh, father in the film has a, has a boat and he helps with the evacuation, that whole effort. And meanwhile, his wife, a uh, title character, is uh, dealing with a German pilot who she finds in her garden and who has a gun and she, she deals with him quite swiftly and elegantly as well. So um, it's, a, it's a very nice movie. Uh, William Wyler is a director I admired greatly because uh, there's so much maturity to his films. He did Dodsworth and The Heiress, and he's just a very strong director of, of actors and a very strong dramatist, and I was happy to discover this one for the purposes of this recommendation feature, so I'm recommending it to you, Mrs. Miniver, 1942. Tasha Robinson? Well, I'm going to recommend something that uh, maybe pairs a little too neatly with Shape of Water, and that is uh, another recent love story about slimy, slimy creatures from the sea. It is uh, 2015's The Lure, uh, which is, I'm going to try to get this all out in one go, a Polish mermaid musical horror film. <laughs> it was, uh, it, it turned up in David Ehrlich's 25 best of the year video for 2017, um, which is just indicative of uh, when it had a, a brief theatrical run at the beginning of 2017 in America. Uh, but it came out in Poland in 2015. It's the first uh, full-length feature from uh, director Agnieszka Smuzienka. She more or less based this story on her own upbringing growing up in nightclubs. And it's a story about uh, two mermaids who come ashore and become singers in a nightclub that they take up with a band. Uh, they start having romances locally. One of them becomes increasingly domesticated and drawn to the land. One is uh, consistently drawn to the sea. Very much like The Shape of Water, it kind of eroticizes the alienness of them and the creepiness of them. They are frequently naked, but missing certain sexual characteristics because they are alien creatures. And it kind of turns the the normal eroticization and the, the male gaze around in a, a completely weird and alien way. It's a funny movie a little bit. It's a fairy tale movie a lot. It's extremely dark and creepy, uh, but it's also kind of a, a punk a little bit of rock and a whole lot of punk musical movie uh, with quite a few musical numbers that evoke, as so many good musicals do, the feelings that the people in the movie are having through music. It's not a, a fantasy sequence musical. It's an actual, like, we're performing these these songs publicly musical. But at the same time, it, it uses those songs to show where they are in the story, where, where they're feeling. It's an adaptation of a relatively well-known story, and I'm not going to spoil what story that is. You'll know when you get there. Mostly what it is, is I think it, people who did connect to Shape of Water's 
weird blend of uh, alien fairy tale monster eroticism would really connect to this. But it also in a way is just it's a very personal story. And it's just a very engagingly weird story. Um, and it's a little sad and melancholy, too. It's called The Lure. It's available on a bunch of different streaming services, but it was also picked up for a Criterion edition, which means you can find it on Filmstruck. And I would highly recommend it. Yeah, it's currently on Filmstruck now, though they can be a little cagey about what they make available and what they don't. They kind of cycle things in and out. Um, but I, last time I looked, The Lure was there. Um, luring me to see it because it looks, it looks really interesting. <laughs> well, if you do, in fact, check it out, I'd be very curious to see what you think about it. I think, if nothing else, you're going to feel that it's less snow globy and and distant and removed. It's a pretty visceral movie. It sounds like it. I in like in that. the in that it's got viscera in it. <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of The Next Fisher Show. Our next episodes come out March 6th and 8th. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Shape of Water, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith. You can find me at Eprox.com, when the editorial director of film and television. And you can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000. Scott? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, t- on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. And you can find my work at the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, NPR. Uh, and I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog, Tasha. Uh, you can find my writing at TheVerge.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can follow our absent co-host Genevieve on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky, where she is outing me for my fish puns right now. You can find her work at the culture section of Vox.com. You can find her herself in the grotto. I don't know whether she wants to be rescued or not. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. Blah, blah, blah. You hear this a lot, but it's true. We appreciate every rating and review because every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space in their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Foam Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. You went away.